0: Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens.
1: This month's episode is all about empires.
0: I am Rabbi Lindsey Healy Pollock.
1: And I am Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone.
0: For this second episode, we are going to get to know each other a little better with a question, talk about what we've been watching or reading since our last episode, Then we'll turn to our main topic, empires. And then for our final segment from the Geniza, we'll dust off one of our old favorites, Firefly, and talk about it, connect it to our theme
1: a bit as well. So first we're gonna get to know each other a little better. So Rabbi Lindsey Healy Pollock, which science fiction or fantasy character do you most relate to and why?
0: So I, had to think about this one a little bit i feel like i talk about game of thrones and house of the dragon way too much but i love it and one of my favorite characters is daenerys targaryen awesome um, she is just such a badass she really you know rises from being a teenage girl who's sort of exiled from her home doesn't really know what's going on is just being kind of left to the whims of the men in her life to becoming a powerful figure in her own right really coming into her own identity and you know of course having some dragons at your disposal who will just you know torch everything if things aren't going your way is is something that you know seems like it might come in handy from time to time and a little aspirational for me so I guess be warned
1: So I identify and go a long way back with Luke Skywalker, certainly the first movie hero I ever saw. I was five when it came out. I very strongly identify with this archetypal hero in the Joseph Campbell sense, who leaves home to go on a quest to find something out there. Not that my parents were burned alive by Faceless Stormtroopers, but I did leave home and did set up to create a different kind of life for myself than the one I grew up in. So I connect with that hero's journey. And Luke was the first one that I really saw and internalized. So definitely Luke Skywalker.
0: Okay. Always a classic. Always. So what have you been watching or reading since our last episode?
1: So I have been keeping up with the Star Wars show, The Bad Batch, which continues to be awesome. This week's episode was extraordinary. It had a lot of connections to a lot of other Star Wars shows, including Rebels. Been watching The Last of Us. Saw the first episode of Mandalorian season three. Lot to talk about in the future about that. But what I really watched a lot of was is Servant on Apple TV Plus. I actually went back, rewatched the first couple seasons, caught up. It is this M. Night Shyamalan executive produced, very much his vibe mystery story where it, it unfolds, they raise questions, answer questions, raise questions, answer questions and lead you down this weird rabbit hole. So basically, there's a nanny who goes to a household with a professional high powered professional couple. She gets to the nursery and she sees that the baby is a doll, a reborn doll, which is an actual company that makes very lifelike dolls for parents who have lost their child to some cause early in. It helps them get through the grieving process. So she takes a doll downstairs, the wife leaves and the husband says, You could put it down now. It's a doll. She says, No, nah, I'm good. And she treats it like a baby, even when nobody is watching. And I'm Like what? And then that night, all of a sudden, there's a live baby in the nursery. And the show is just trying to figure out Who is this child? Is it their child? Is it not their child? Whose child is it? That's the core mystery and it gets weirder and the story unfolds. What happened to their son? Who is the nanny? Why is she there? What's her background? She's part of a cult. What are they all about and the show played with the line between believing someone has extraordinary powers or trying to make sense of random events and, and how you see the world and the show juggles with sort of faith versus reason. Cult and the Power of Suggestion, and it's almost done, and I'm very happy to see the conclusion. I do not think they'll tell us what's going on, but maybe they will. Who knows? So I've thoroughly enjoyed all of it. What have you been watching or reading lately?
0: Well, I can't decide if i want to watch the servant or if i would find it too creepy but it does sound really interesting and intriguing so i may have to think about this what i've been watching is the series wednesday on netflix which of course picks up the character of wednesday adams from the adams family i have watched many adams family iterations over the years when i was a kid we used to watch reruns of the old adams family tv show i watched the the movies that were released in the 90s with Christina Ricci as Wednesday Adams so it's really fun to see her come back to play another character an adult character in in this series so the the plot is roughly that Wednesday is now a teenager she is expelled from her school for releasing piranhas into the swimming pool on sticking them on the boys water polo team And she is then sent to the Nevermore Academy, which her parents, Morticia and Gomez Adams, attended as students. And it has all of that dark academia vibe, school for unusual children, outcasts of various sorts. There are different categories. It's unclear which of them Wednesday is supposed to be from the outset. There are some who are sirens that are mermaids essentially werewolves various other beings and they're in this town they have kind of a troubled relationship with the townies that apparently goes back all the way to colonial times and we see a bit about that so you know it combines what's always been some of my you know favorite things so a, a magical school setting for unusual teens witchcraft particularly witchcraft set in the colonial period I mean I don't know I I I love the crucible I love I don't know anything that has to do with that period of time always always captures my interest and you know aesthetically it's just really fun definitely has that Tim Burton vibe he's one of directing some of the episodes and is involved in the project and is is a lot of fun little you know reboot of a character and seeing her in a different stage of life than we've seen her in previous iterations of the adams family where she's always a little girl
1: for me i love the visual image of the she and her roommate's window half beautiful vibrant colors and half her shades of gray palette just right down the middle as they share the space love that image that's that kind of like captures the image of the show for me too
0: yeah it's a lot of fun i mean it's also i i didn't know what to expect kind of going in and so i found it kind of amusing that even in a school for you know werewolves sirens and other you know beings with with unusual ability wednesday still stands out for her lack of color and you know sense of dark humor she gets a special uniform because even the the regular uniform is too colorful for her and your yeah, her roommate of course is a werewolf who <laughs> or a i guess i don't know what they would call it if she went before she acquires her werewolf abilities but she you know she's very Pink and happy and bubbly, which are not qualities that one typically associates with werewolves. I like like
1: that breaking of the stereotype of the werewolf. There was a word for her stage, too. I forget what it was. Yeah, I forget forget what it was. But let us go on to our main topic, empires. Massive governmental authorities and thinking about how people relate to them and engage with them. Tell us more about that.
0: Yeah, so... We wanted to open with a few questions that will be guiding our thinking as we explore this topic. So what should one's relationship be to the current authority in our society, especially for someone who might be an outsider in that society? Should you embrace and support that authority in a positive way? Should you get involved actively with the authority itself? or perhaps accommodate them and adapt as needed to keep yourself, family, and community safe? Or should you resist and even fight against them at all costs? So we're going to be looking at empires in biblical and rabbinic sources, and then we'll see how empires are handled in sci-fi and fantasy works and look for points of connection.
1: So you may be wondering why we're talking about empires at all right now, And Lindsay had this topic in mind because this month is the month where we celebrate the holiday of Purim, where we read the story of Esper and Mordechai, two seemingly normal Jewish people living in Shushan, the capital fortress of the Persian Empire, who try to foil the evil plot of the very evil Haman, who has become the king's main advisor through unclear means. And he has used the king's authority without the king's full awareness to issue a decree to kill all of the Jews in the Persian Empire at some point in the future. It's about a year later, actually. And we're going to come back to how empire fits into that story a bit later on. But first, we feel the need to bring out the Jewish people's imperial experience credentials. We've lived through a lot of empires. The land of Israel is on the crossroads of many empires. So here is a short thumbnail sketch of the various empires we've experienced as a collective people.
0: Okay, so first, obviously, the Egyptian empire, which is the backdrop for the Book of Exodus, among other things. Egypt continues to be a major player throughout the biblical period, not always as an enemy. They're always the empire next door and a potential threat.
1: Next, we have the Assyrian Empire. You can read about them in the Book of Kings and in Isaiah. They're responsible for destroying Israel's northern kingdom. Their favorite method of conquest was to take a population out, put them somewhere else in exile and replace them with foreigners from other lands and Famously, when they did that to Israel, the people they replaced them with became known as the Samaritans. So you can Google that later.
0: And also the Assyrian destruction of the Northern Kingdom is responsible for the sort of lore of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, if you've ever heard about that. So then the Babylonian Empire, also coming from Mesopotamia, They are a big bad empire in the books of Second Kings, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This Psalm 137 is a clear expression of anger following their conquest of Judea, the Southern Kingdom, and their method of conquest was to exile the elite, leave behind a controllable population with a puppet puppet governor. And they are the ones who are behind the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple in the year 586 BCE.
1: And next we have our favorite, or maybe it's like the least hated empire, which is the Persian Empire, in which the story of Purim is set. They are indeed the imperial background for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as well. Unlike Assyria and Babylon, preferred to have people living in their own land in control of their temples and their shrines and just pay your taxes and we're all good the jewish diaspora here set down roots most jews judeans do not go back when they can when others live all over in various parts of the persian empire there was a particularly large community in elephantine in egypt which is a jewish military outpost and this is the most favorable empire that we've lived under and next we have the greeks
0: yeah so the persian empire is defeated by alexander the great in the 330s bce it's after his death, the empire is then divided into three smaller regions, only two of which concern Jewish history, the Ptolemies who took over Egypt and the Seleucids in Assyria, which of course puts our the region of Judea right in the middle. Hellenism was generally cool with local religions, much like the Persian empire, and also made Greek culture appealing to a wide audience. And in this time period, after a civil war in Judea centered on how much Hellenism was good for the Jews in this time period after a civil war in Judea centered on how much Hellenism was good for the Jews some internal Jewish infighting we have the Maccabee revolt in 165 BCE against the Seleucid king Antiochus who for some reason breaking with Hellenistic rulers decides to intervene in the temple and and converting it over to worship of foreign gods which the hasmoneans were not too happy about the hasmoneans the dynasty that was established by the maccabees were the rare case of having political sovereignty after many centuries of judea being under an empire or being a vassal state to a neighboring kingdom and their reign lasted less than one century, ultimately.
1: Then we come to the most notorious of the empires, which are the Romans, who are responsible- Ooh, Ooh, yeah, they're like the Haman of the, the global world. Yes, not a fan of the Roman Empire. For other reference, see the movie, The Life of Brian. They destroyed the second temple and Jerusalem again. They were generally happy to have people do their own religious thing, but they also had a much tighter desire for control called Pax Romana, which basically means don't make waves or we will destroy you. They were brought in to help a Hasmonean dispute between two princes who were vying for the throne, which leads me to create the aphorism: never bring in the Romans to solve your dispute. They take over in the year 63 BCE. And they, you know, basically run most of the world for the next 400 years, there was a notable Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire in the year 67 CE, which led to the aforementioned destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And there was another last outpost resistance movement called the Bar Kochba revolt in 135, which ended the last vestige of any kind of Jewish sovereignty for the next couple thousand years. And then we simply basically Jews move to the north of the land of Israel in the Galilee, and we're still spread out over a large diaspora. And then the Persians come back into the game.
0: Many Jews in this period were already living in a sizable diaspora, many of them still in Mesopotamia, where they had been living under previous empires. And so then when this sasanian Persian Empire comes, they become power under which a large Jewish community is living. The Sasanian Persian Empire is the empire in that region that was ruling during what we think of as the rabbinic period, the time when the rabbis of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, were editing and, and passing along those teachings. It's concurrent with the Byzantine Empire, which is the Eastern Roman Empire. The religious, practice of the Sasanian rulers was Zoroastrianism. They believed in dualistic theology, forces of dark and forces of light, good and evil, that had some influence on other traditions, including Judaism. It's the context in which, as I mentioned, the Babylonian Talmud was being edited, and then more or less the same region switched over to coming under islamic rule
1: that happens around the year 600 ce and the muslim empire spreads very fast over a vast area where most of the jewish community lives in the diaspora from approaching india all the way over to spain and life's second class for jews but generally very good and this sees a huge rise in Jewish authority centralized in Baghdad, in particular for the next 300 years. And then as Islam spreads, Jews basically move where Muslim authorities sort of move and Jews move with them. And then we've got various Christian kingdoms in Europe. We have the Ottoman Empire, which goes to the end of World War One. But why this quick sketch? You know, why? Why do this? Why talk about all these different empires, which we've lived under for the past, you know, a few 1000 years. And, you know, it's relevant because the Jewish collective experience of living through these different imperial powers, gives rabbinic teaching on these topics credibility. The rabbis bring centuries of wisdom and experience from being a minority community under the power of large foreign empires, each with its own method of using and abusing power strengths and weaknesses. And we also have the vantage point that empires come and go, which you see in world history class in ninth and 10th grade, which is like what King George sings in Hamilton, oceans rise, empires fall, we have seen each other through it all. And uh, King George is a great example of an empire that saw a breakaway as well. The sun now does set over the British Empire, but then it comes back to the Book of Esther, the reason for the season. So Lindsay, tell us kind of like what is what is this saying about Empire? What is Esther's comment?
0: Yeah, that is a great question. I think there are a few different responses or possible responses or interpretations that we can can see from the Book of Esther to the experience of diaspora being in or living under Imperial authority. So as we mentioned before, the Book of Esther is set in the Persian Empire, and it deals with two prominent Jewish characters, Mordecai and his niece, adopted daughter Esther, who are identified early on in the book as being Judean. And so it relates to our question about how should Jews or how should any minority group perhaps relate to imperial power? Often when we read this story, at least the the way that, that I had typically always interpreted it was, it was an example of, you know, this cycle of Jewish history and interpretation of Jewish history where they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat, you know, that's the joke version of, of what every Jewish holiday is about. So there's this this assumption perhaps that that this is a, a negative take right you know haman tries to kill the jewish pp it is eventually foiled and so there's the the takeaway could be from that that life in the diaspora is inherently dangerous that we always need to be vigilant and on watch against such things happening the but the book's comic nature is probably also t- intended to set people at ease remain confident maybe that life in the diaspora is safe perhaps that people should work with the ruling authorities and that hatred and violence toward the Jewish people is not the norm Esther and Mordechai are also it's interesting are very close to the seat of power and authority at the beginning of the book and throughout we see them as they're not living in in some province somewhere they are right in the capital of the Persian Empire Mordecai seems to have a relatively powerful role he's he's gathered at the gates of the city which is where you know the elders where members of government council would be meeting together so Esther and Mordecai are seem to be in the center of Persian culture. They are not outside of Persian culture. They don't seem to be persecuted for their Judean identity at the beginning of the book. It really just seems that when Haman hatches his evil plan, it's really out of a personal vendetta against Mordechai. He decides, oh, you know, this guy Mordechai is my enemy. This is his community of origin. My plan is going to be to take out everyone who is connected to his people and culture. And in the end, of course, Mordechai is victorious and he's adorned with these royal garments, seems to be put in a position of maybe even greater power and authority. And as as a Jewish person or Judean, we might say.
1: And, and to your point, Esther and Mordechai being Persian Jews, their names are Babylonian, Persian names. They're named for two Babylonian gods, Marduk and Ishtar. They have very assimilated names, and yet Esther has to be very careful to let anybody know that she is Jewish. like She is distinctively Jewish, and it could put her at risk, so Mordechai is afraid. Unclear why? Because there's no real fear about Mordecai being seen as Jewish. Just unclear what's going on there. It's kind of a odd thing but i think people who think that the book of esther is serious have the negative view of diaspora and if you see it as comedy you see it more likely to see it as the positive view of diaspora like it's a comedy it's all going to be okay in the end but if you think it's serious then it's like Haman's a real threat and you kind of you know are really afraid of him if you don't have the comedy to kind of you know balance him out that's my theory that's my, that's, my, that's my reader's theory is that if you see the comedy it's positive If you don't see the comedy it's negative
0: that's interesting i i hadn't thought about it that way i had always previously seen it as sort of the comic part of it is actually part of how you cope with the realities of a difficult diaspora experience or at least i mean i think that's the way that we have chosen to celebrate and mark the holiday of Purim. And right, so the way that we interpret texts and the way that we have developed our practices around holidays comes out of the particular context in which Jews have lived in. And so, you know, if you're a Jewish person living in medieval Christian Europe, where exiles and blood libels and crusades are a part of the backdrop, your experience of diaspora is going to be quite negative and so perhaps you know you're they're reading and interpreting the story through that lens but i think all of the evidence that we have both in the text itself as well as outside of the text seem don't suggest anything about to to lead us to believe that life under the persian empire was particularly bad for jews and it seems as you said before you know at least this seems to be the least hated empire at the very least i mean Cyrus, who is the king that allows them to return, is referred in other texts in the Bible as being a messianic figure. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, the attitude towards Cyrus is largely positive. Jews seem to have a presence throughout the Persian empire and are serving, you know, as in the military, presumably also as bureaucrats. You kind of wonder, is Mordecai intended to be sort of an exaggerated character, or is this a figure that people would have actually recognized? Oh yeah, a Jewish person who serves in the imperial government.
1: I think it is just so delightfully ambiguous. Both readings are totally plausible. I love that about it so speaking of like ambiguity so let's look at some rabbinic literature and some biblical sources that reflect on the realities of living under an empire so we looked at a number of sources jewish sources biblical and rabbinic that address this topic we've made a source sheet on the website safaria which is an online jewish library we'll put a link to this source sheet in the notes to the episode you can go look at those sources which we're going to touch upon briefly not Fully on, it takes too long. You can go look at them in Sopharia. So the first couple sources are from our biblical sources, one from Deuteronomy, the laws of the king, and one from Samuel, his speech about what having a king means. And the takeaway for me is that large governments are expensive with high costs for the benefits they provide, and kings take and take and take and take and take. Take your land, your children, your crops, they just they need a lot. And monarchy is a solution with its own problems. And so governments of any kind have to have limits. And in Deuteronomy, the king has very circumscribed power, economic, military, political, and legal power. So there's a lot of wariness of these human created systems. And Israel's first king's name is Saul, which in Hebrew is Sha'ul, which means you asked for it, I think is very indicative. So Lindsay, walk us through some rabbinic texts about government. Sure. Okay.
0: So a number of texts in Pirkei Avot, which is from the Mishnah in the early centuries CE. It means ethics or sayings of the fathers. And collects a number of different statements about relationship to governing authorities. So in Pirkei Vote, chapter one, number 10, there's a saying attributed to Shemaiah, who used to say, love work, hate acting the superior and do not attempt to draw near to the ruling authority. So there seems to be, right, general, words of wisdom to live by here that Shemaiah is imparting to us. And in the Hebrew, it's kind of interesting that we were noting that um, the Hebrew is tit v'adal la rashut. Do not become intimate with, become familiar with. The uh, the root here is from the Hebrew word to know the ruling authority. So maybe less about where right, you're drawing near, but also about maybe don't get too overly involved in it the authority is also referred to as lovers meaning you know they have domain or control over things and, and it's not identified as who this rachute is whether it's a jewish ruling authority an empire of some sort presumably this could apply to any
1: ruling authority
0: what do you think andrew
1: I mean, it's written under the Romans, so I'm inclined to go there first. And there's certainly this broad caution. Just, you know, do not get too entangled with the prevailing authority. One of the commentaries we saw says, because it's going to suck you in and it's going to make you do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do and it may even cause you to undermine your own community. Another one we saw from the next chapter, Pirkei 2, three, be careful in dealing with the ruling authorities, for they do not befriend a person except for their own needs. They seem like friends when it is to their own interest, but they do not stand by a person in the hour of their distress. So more caution here. And we'll see this in some of our sci-fi fantasy examples where governments simply do what they do for their own purposes not for the benefit of anybody nor detriment they simply operate and steamroll over everybody in their path so if the government feels like it's an ally that's a delusion that's that that's just simply you feeling it but it's not real because they really are looking out for the system's interest the system has its own particular take yeah just mistrust Necessary evil, you know, one source says, you know, pray for the government, otherwise people will swallow each other alive, like you need government, we wish we didn't, but we're glad they're there because anarchy is far worse than anything else. And just, you know, pray that they maintain some level of semblance of order in society or it's all going to fall apart. And a lot of rabbinic sources talk about, you know, should you resist should you be defiant you know most teach that at some point fighting back's not worthwhile so simply surrender and get what you can out just you know don't fight it it's not it's not going to end well for you and then am across this other third view which was really surprising but and much more modern and tell us about Rabbi Hirsch's
0: take. yeah So this is Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who was the founder of Neo-Orthodoxy. He's writing in the 19th century in Germany. And it's at the peak moment when Jews for the first time are experiencing something which is familiar to us now, which is the idea of modern citizenship. So one of the things that I think is interesting also, just to give us some context in the Imperial history that we went through is that it's not just jews that are sort of subject to these empires and don't have rights as citizens in the way that we think about pretty much everyone is living under similar kinds of conditions maybe your your lot in life might be a little bit more advantage than jews depending on what your class was or in the time and place but this idea of modern citizenship is something that is very new and was gradually extended to Jews in the 19th century, in in some of the countries of Western Europe. So Hirsch is writing in that context when Jews are kind of enjoying a new kind of status as hopefully as equal citizens of a modern nation state. So he writes to that it is our duty to join ourselves as closely as possible to the state, which receives us into its midst to promote its welfare and not to consider our well-being as in any way separate from that of the state to which we belong which is fascinating it's similar right to the other text that we read from pure k that talks about the need for praying for the the welfare of the government but he takes it to a whole other level that was saying pray for the welfare of the government because you know they kind of help keep everybody in line, they're a necessary evil in some ways. This is is saying something far stronger, which is that it sees the the nation state and the government as benevolent, right? They have received us, they've maybe welcomed us even into the state, and our well-being and the state's well-being are Interconnected in a way that is very different from what we see in some of these older rabbinic texts.
1: It's unprecedented. He also wrote these under a pen name. And I don't know if that was because he just used a pen name or was afraid of actually being the source of this idea, kind of putting the idea out there to see what people would say as an idea, because it was radical. It was just so unlike anything else. And maybe the other extreme is this live free or die view which some rabbinic sources also have certainly under the roman empire the most oppressive empire and that empire should be opposed even at the cost of your own life because to submit to them is basically to is basically to be like the living dead so some advocate for passive defiance so you know jewish practices were outlawed then some rabbis said i'm going to teach anyway rabbi akiva during the Hadrianic persecution most notable, not the only one. In fact, there are are 10 who are executed in public by the Romans for defying the Hadrianic decree, and some call out for actual violent resistance. These are like the zealots at the end of the Second Temple period who, when Jerusalem was under siege, they burn all the food, which could have lasted them 21 years, but they're like, let's end this now. And they burn the food stores to push people to fight, to get out so they can live. And then the Bar Kokhba revolt, where they basically rise up against Rome. I don't know what they were thinking. It did not end well, but that was another armed resistance against the Roman empire that ultimately gets squashed. But they were that, you know, we want sovereignty or death. So. All these Jewish sources just have such a wide range of views of government and the lion's share have a deep ambivalence about any governmental power whatsoever. And all of that was to give us like a lens, a Jewish lens to look at some sci-fi and fantasy. So I appreciate everyone's forbearance in letting us look at a very large lens. (laughs) So we're going to look at two particular pieces, Star Wars and Game of Thrones, to see how Empire plays out in these. So I'm gonna begin with looking at Star Wars. I'm gonna do it in chronological order. So Star Wars in general, you know, what's the view of the Galactic Empire versus the New Republic? Are they good? Are they bad? Generally speaking, like the rabbi, Star Wars in general is leery of every form of government for one reason or another. There's no perfect government as well. In the prequel trilogy, we have the Republic. They're huge. It's a democracy with hundreds of star systems. And it's a big bureaucracy, which is good things happen. It also bogs them down. We see their power just simply can't go that far. Some plants are beyond their influence. And Padme thinks slavery has been outlawed. She is naive because beyond the Republic, there is slavery happening. And I love Anakin and Padme's debate in the meadow with his weird cow things behind them. Anakin's frustrated about the slow paced democracy. And Padme insists, but this is the best form. Even though Naboo was harmed by it with that trade dispute, um, it was still better than alternatives. And Anakin just wants things to move faster, and he moves towards an authoritarianist. So Padme kind of reflects the Rabbi Hirsch view government's good, work with it, very positive view of democracy. And Anakin wants a more Roman imperial style, just use force to create peace, which is Basically, what the Empire does. They're the most like the Roman Empire. Not exactly, but it's a rough analog. Palpatine exploits the bureaucracy to take control, which is such a delightful, boring plot. In Episode one, it's so boring to be brilliant that that's my hot take on the Phantom Menace. And then they create this separatist movement in the second movie, where there's a critique of the Republic, they go, Okay, the Republic, like the view, of the rabbis say this government is not serving our own needs it's serving their own needs and we're going to break away and form something else because you're not helping us anymore you're simply doing your own thing one could say that even individuals who believe in the system of democracy are supporting a system that doesn't actually support individuals anyway that they're simply blind to the system's functioning so the separatist movement leads to the clone war which moved the senate to erode its checks and balance systems which lead them to give emergency powers, well-intentioned warfare to a single person who will then lay down the power right. That never happens, of course. You certainly get then the rabbinic view that government is meant to be kept at arm's distance and to be wary of it because they're not even gonna help you. Then in Andor, we have this much more nuanced take of the empire as well. We see how the empire slowly extends its control, we see how some people, like her says, work for the Empire wholeheartedly. Cyril Karn, Deidre Miro, some keep their heads down and avoid like Andor, Kino Loy, Marva, the senators who say, oh, the Empire's here just to keep the peace and help us. So we'll just kind of like, let them do their thing and stay out of the way. And some begin to organize and fight. Luthen, Mon Mothma, Namek and his crew, and Sagarera kind of, you know, as a, a range of resistance fighters. And we see that actually the the empire that is pretty new clearly has things that existed during the Republic that were also oppressive. You know, wariness has always been warranted. Then come to the original trilogy and just the empire is just evil. You know, its main antagonist is wearing black, faceless soldiers. They kidnap a young girl. The rebels are just inherently good fighting against huge oppressive evil. The last bit of democracy is gone as they mentioned it was a throwaway line about the Senate being dissolved. And now that the, now there's this empire that has no way to control, so they have their super weapon, the Death Star, and they put all their eggs in that one basket, which will be exploited twice or even three times. Then you get to the Mandalorian and the empire's gone. Now it's like, oh yeah, this is what they meant by people will eat each other alive with no government because it's a wild west. And that creates this horrible power vacuum, which you see in the Mandalorian with pirates and outposts and whatnot, and that leads to the First Order clearly happening in the background, and that becomes this caricature of the evil empire, almost like cartoony level car- cartoony level evil, like you know Hitler on steroids. It's like ridiculous. I'll say no more about the sequel trilogy, right? So I think you see like so many of the rabbinic views reflected throughout the Star Wars universe, all right, game of thrones, monarchies, monarchies, right.
0: So unlike in the star wars universe, where you see various kinds of forms of government in game of thrones, as the title suggests, right. We're talking about monarchies here, the entire series and house of the dragon as well, the prequel series is about politics. It's. An exploration on who has the right to rule the risk of challenges to the throne, the moral ambiguity, regardless of how right you think you might be to seize power that arises when you actually have it, what do you have to actually do to hold on to that power, how do you respond to the risk of rebellion to challenges that you might have. And of course, you know, the tagline from which the, the name comes is in the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. So it's a very ex- existential in that way for those who are joc- jockeying for power or trying to hold on to it. The history of, of Westeros is just one of successive empires, monarchies, whatever we, we want to call it. There, there had been multiple waves of this of groups coming from essos to westeros there were the first men who were not actually the first because they conquered over the the children of the forest who were there before they bring about their their religion the seven-faced god although we still have some worship of the old gods so there seems to be some cultural domination going on as well even though it's not complete the previous culture is not completely eradicated you have the Andals who come in and then eventually the Targaryens who famously ride in on dragons and take things over there's a seems to be a period of time where there were seven kingdoms that were relatively independent of one another that are then unified under this one power so in that way I think the tar- Targaryens act in a way that's very similar to these imperial powers that we've been talking about in the actual historical record they require the acceptance of their rule the submission to their authority what is often referred to in game of thrones as bending the knee and (laughs) it's inherently unstable you have all of these seven kingdoms who are still referred to as that even though they are no longer independent monarchies, you have the lords of each of these great houses, and some of them are are much more allied with the monarchy and supportive, and others always have been a little bit skeptical. In the Game of Thrones series, a large amount of the plot really is, revolves around challenges to the authority and, and also a sense of having been wronged on the part of those who lost their authority so the targaryens had a there was a mad king air er, heiress who was doing crazy stuff things that you know even in a period in which we're believing in or accepting loot monarchy where the, the monarch is the highest authority in the land and whatever they say goes Even so, the things that King Aerys were doing were seen as being unusually cruel and, and disturbing, which caused a lot of concern. But what ultimately starts the challenge to the throne and ends with the execution of the king as well as some of his descendants is that the king's son, Rhaegar, supposedly kidnaps... Lyanna Stark, who is betrothed to Robert Baratheon. Robert is not happy about this. He joins up with his buddy, Ned Stark, who is Liana's brother, to go to war against Prince Rhaegar. They succeed in defeating the Targaryens, and Robert seizes power and is crowned as king. So it's clearly a case of might makes right here it's like if you demonstrate that you have the power you can seize the throne and then maybe establish your own hereditary monarchy of course you're always having to look over your shoulder to see who might come and challenge that authority once you've achieved or attained power you still have to constantly be looking over your shoulder wondering who might be trying to challenge your power and constantly having to survey the field to make sure there's not any rebellion in fomenting as you go along. Um, so in terms of how this compares to some of our Jewish sources, like this is in line with the biblical text that we looked at from the book of Deuteronomy and Samuel that see monarchs as inherently problematic, right? They take, you see, insane wealth on the part of the monarchs and the aristocracy in Game of Thrones. Their power is always unstable. They always have to be worried about challengers. They can never really rest and be secure. And their power is dependent on their ability to control and extract from the population, which is more or less exactly what samuel says and you know counter to the rules that are set forward in deuteronomy that put some restrictions on the power of the monarch there seem to be no restrictions on the power of monarchs in game of game of thrones universe here they are similar in that way to historically what we've seen with with a lot of monarchs or emperors that there is no law higher than them and that's very different than what Deuteronomy at least wants to put forward, which is the idea that, oh, no, the king actually has to carry a copy of the Torah with them to refer to, meaning they are not above the law. There is a law that is above the monarch, which is not something that you see really in Game of Thrones for the most part. And I would also say, you know, it Pirkei votes <laughs> the rabbinic sources, skepticism towards the government is reflected very well in this series as well because you see you know what happens right the the observation that the government is really only after its own interests is reflected time and time again throughout the series you know they whatever principles might have guided a particular individual to seek power I mean we see Later on in the series, Daenerys Targaryen kind of, uh, starting to to gain some power in Essos, and then come up with her plan to come back to Westeros and and conquer the you th- know this land that she felt was rightfully hers, but is confronted with, even when she thinks she's doing the right thing, having to make kinds of choices that she needs to make that might revolt in, or I'm sorry, might result in violence and death, the very kinds of things she supposedly wants to work against, she ends up having to engage in herself in order to secure and cement her own power, which I think is something that the rabbis and pure votes are wary of. And you see all of these various figures who are involved in the administration of government, who serve as advisors on the council, act as hand of the king, who, you know, it's interesting, as we were talking about before, in some later periods in Jewish history, Jews served in those kinds of roles in various courts, but the text in pure K of votes seem to be advising against that sort of thing, right? Particularly the first one that we saw saying, you know, don't get too intimate or too familiar with the ruling authority. And certainly a lot of these figures that we see in Game of Thrones, like Varys, who, you know, is sending out his little birds to collect information is very intimately involved.
1: I think of Don Isaac of in particular. He was the chief financial officer to Ferdinand and Isabella in Columbus's day, master of coin in Game of Thrones parlance. And when the Jews were exiled from Spain to remove them from influencing Jews who become Christian, they let the the king offers to let Abarbanel stay because he was so important to the monarchy and he opts to go into exile. I think despite his intimacy with the reshute, the government, he is able to separate himself and actually then goes. I don't know where he, he must go to Portugal, but he leaves. And that was a, a surprising move for someone who was very close to the seats of authority. I was thinking about the Emperor in Star Wars a little bit, too, where Robert Baratheon's power is so overt. Like, you know how he became the king. It's clear it was through through might and military military force. The Emperor's rise to power is all kind of behind the scenes. Things just kind of happen. He's like the behind the scenes. Pulling the strings kind of like God of the Book of Esther behind the scenes. So, so he gets his power because they keep giving it to him. Like the Senate gives him power. Padme calls for of no confidence. Charter gives him gives him temporary authority to call up an army. And then things just keep happening, happening, happening circumstantially. It's only when the Senate's gone and they have the Death Star, when there's like overt power that then they're vulnerable because now they can see that's all he has. And that's when the Empire is really fragile, like Baratheon. All he has is his physical power. All the Empire has is their physical power. And then they're all very vulnerable. The Empire in Star Wars only lasts 30 years. Is that right? Yes, around 30 years. That's it. It's very short lived. It is not a good plan. The Empire <laughs> is not a good planner. <laughs> He's just evil. So what does all this mean? What's our synthesis of all of this? Something that we've been thinking about a lot. And we talk about a number of takeaways. So one takeaway that you and I talked about was we hope that people get that the rabbis have remarkable insight as people do today and come to similar insights about how people and governments relate to each other, that they know what they're talking about. They're, yes, it a long time ago, but they are, astute observers of society, people, and the human condition, as are good sci-fi and fantasy authors, each working in their own media. So that was one. What were some of the other ones we were talking about?
0: Yeah, so we were also talking about the way that sci-fi and fantasy, by creating alternative worlds, allow us to explore and play out what it would mean if a certain kind of regime was established. And Jewish sources, by also drawing on the shared experience of the people of Israel living under all of these different empires and contexts, those who comment on those sources explore the same question. We're exploring what our relationships should be or can be and what the implications of various kinds of systems might
1: be both jewish sources and sci-fi and fantasy come away with tremendous skepticism as well they should and that governments need to be viewed cautiously you know and some very optimistic and some extraordinarily cautious it's a pretty nuanced view of government there is no one view the extremes are not helpful the range of views helps i think give us a number of ways to evaluate governments thoughtfully and carefully you know What's the nature of the government? What do they parallel in the Jewish sources and the sci-fi fantasy sources? And then what might an appropriate response to them actually be? kind of they give us like tools and lenses to evaluate a number of different possibilities.
0: Right, and they stay away from that, you know, government is good or government is evil kind of characterization, or this kind of government is good and this kind of government is evil. Instead showing us or reflecting Perhaps holding up a mirror to us to see, you know, yes, you choose one t- form that might solve some problems, as you had said, but create others, and to be aware of that fact, and and also that sci-fi and fantasy and their creators have not always been mainstream. They're becoming more mainstream. They're often countercultural and kind of speaking from the margins. And rabbinic texts similarly are also not mainstream, or were not the mainstream when they, at the time they were being written, they're written by a community reflecting on empires and systems and societies that they are somewhat on the margins from. They're countercultural, but each of these sci-fi, fantasy, and rabbinic tradition brings wisdom and insight from its authors that I think that particular viewpoint can make more clear to us and and bring a countercultural or different perspective to these questions that we're thinking about
1: yeah and 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 both of them well no no sorry and religious traditions also are often a voice that'll push back against power structures they're often a challenge to authority tax rabbinic texts in many ways you know push against conventional thinking against dominant forces dominant powers and you know subtly and subversively but they push back and they push back hard we'll talk i'm sure in a future episode about perhaps you know how subversive abraham was in the midrash for example very subversive stuff so that's that is empires from a biblical rabbinic and sci-fi fantasy lens. Now we come to our last segment from the Geniza, where we pull out old sci-fi or fantasy from back in the day that we still love today. And today we're going to pull out Firefly. So Lindsay, tell me about what you like or don't like about Firefly.
0: Yeah, so like you, as we were talking a bit before, I missed Firefly when it was first released. There was the one, one season and then a movie. But heard about it from friends i i like it a lot i love that it's you know this ragtag crew made up of a diverse cast of characters you know there's not i like that there are a diverse array of female characters in particular i like that they all have their person unique personalities and i i like that it kind of blends the sci-fi fantasy with a sort of wild west vibe right they are kind of on the outskirts of human civilization which is now scattered over all of these different planets kind of you know going about their their lives and the as people who are just trying to kind of make their way which in a lot of ways reminds me somewhat of the condition of, of Jews in various parts of the world throughout all of these you know they're sort of maybe somewhat trying to keep their distance from the ruling authorities you know just do what you need to do. Stay away from them. Stay out of trouble, and you'll you'll it'll all be fine. And you know, yeah, I, th- I think we were talking a bit about like the tech too. It doesn't seem too overly sleek. It seems like a a somewhat realistic yet also you know fun, lighthearted, and you know comic take on on what a, a future that involves interplanetary travel could be
1: yeah I love that there's no faster than light travel it's just get there slowly no aliens kind of the anti-star trek love mal as the captain love the crew great characters I love that it's really morally gray the government's not good it's not bad the crew not good not bad they were just kind of just doing their best you know they are these former rebels brown coats against the the then formed alliance which you know they don't deal with we don't see it from the inside we don't know but we don't really see it much at all it's kind of avoided so are they good or bad we don't know one thing i love about the show which i want to come back to maybe later on is the reavers and planet harmony which comes at the end of the series i think or is that in serenity the movie anyway reavers these over-the-top like insane people or the aliens and then they find this planet called harmony which they're not supposed to be able to find where everyone's just sitting there they've wasted away and they're dead because they were able to separate out all of the bad inclinations from humanity but then they left behind just no drive to do anything and they all died so i want to come back to that for a very obvious Good, evil, inclination, dichotomy talk on the future. I'm going to bookmark that for
0: later. Yeah, I'm uh, so that, excited. Nice.
1: That's one of my favorite, like Yetzer ha Yetzer HaTov. Yes. Things. We'll come back to that. And that brings us to the end of our second episode um, of Sacred Realms on Empires. So thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci fi and fantasy through a Jewish lens and come back to hear more. We'll have our next episode in about a month, and we'll focus on something related to, but not necessarily exactly, Passover. If you like this episode, please leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple Podcast app, or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. And thank you for all of our positive reviews so far. This episode was written by me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone.
0: And by me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollack.
1: We recorded today on Zoom and edited using Descripts. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. And we'll sign off with May the Farshim be with you.